You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Well, good evening. Good evening. I'm thankful tonight for the opportunity to preach. Um, certainly looking forward to this message. Um, if you would turn your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 12, we'll go ahead and let you turn there. Tonight is a, is a message that I have worked on off and on for a little while, and uh, it's a passage that I find particularly interesting um, regarding the subject of King Rehoboam and just the interesting case study that he provides and all of the elements that are kind of interplaying in this account that we'll read tonight, but there's, I think, one thing that is crucial for us to pull out of it that I hope to be able to communicate to you tonight. So, 1 Kings chapter 12, if you would, if you're there, let's stand. We'll go ahead and get into the reading. 1 Kings chapter 12, the Bible says, in Rehoboam, in verse number one, it says, and Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel were come to Shechem to make him king. And it came to pass when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was yet in Egypt, heard of it, for he was fled from the presence of King Solomon, and Jeroboam dwelt in Egypt, that they, being the people of Israel, sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the congregation of Israel came and spake unto Jeroboam, saying, Thy father made our yoke grievous. Now therefore make thou the grievous service of thy father, and his heavy yoke which he put upon us, lighter, and we will serve thee. And he said unto them, Depart yet for three days, then come again to me, and the people departed. Got to give him some credit here to, to think about his answer for at least a little bit. And King Rehoboam consulted with the old men that stood before Solomon his father while he yet lived, and said, How do ye advise that I may answer this people? And they spake unto him, saying, If thou wilt be a servant unto this people this day, and wilt serve them, and answer them, and speak good words to them, then they will be thy servants forever. But he forsook the counsel of the old men which they had given him, and consulted with the young men that were grown up with him, and which stood before him. And he said unto them, What counsel give ye, that we may, that we may answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Make the yoke which thy father did put upon us lighter. And the young men that were grown up with him spake unto him, saying, Thus shalt thou speak unto this people, that spake unto thee, saying, Thy father made our yoke heavy, but make thou it lighter unto us. Thus shalt thou say unto them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's loins. And now, whereas my father did lay you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father hath chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. So, three days later, Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had appointed, saying, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people roughly, and forsook the old men's counsel that they gave him, and spake to them after the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, and I will add to your yoke. 
My father also chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. And just for some clarification here, scorpions are, would have been what most would consider a specialized type of whip, particularly to cause intense amounts of pain. So this was not just your standard taskmaster driving whip. This was, he's, he's not talking about actual scorpions here. Just thought I would throw that out there for some clarifications. Wherefore, in verse number 15, wherefore the king hearkened not unto the people for the cause was from the Lord that he might perform his saying which the Lord spake by Ahijah the Shilonite unto Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So when all Israel saw that the king hearkened not unto them, the, king, the people answered the king saying, What portion have we in David? Neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see to thine own house, David. So Israel departed to their tents. Let's jump down to verse number 20. And it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam was come again, that they sent and called him unto the congregation and made him king over all Israel. And there was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. Thank you for standing for the reading of the word. You may be seated. The year was 2016. In the United States of America, tensions were high as the November polls for the presidential election drew nearer. And I can see the smiles on some of your faces because you like politics. <laughs> I do not. <laughs> in what had been one of the most politically divisive campaigns in the history of our country, at least until 2020, Donald J. Trump and Hillary Clinton were seemingly at one another's throats in the contest for the Oval Office. TV advertisements were in, in, in social media were covered in smear campaigns, slanderous ads, conspiracy accusations, and both candidates did absolutely everything in their power to convince the American people that they themselves were the savior of freedom and democracy, whilst the other was the very chief of the forces of evil which we all face on a day-to-day -day basis. I have in my notes pause for dramatic effect. <laughs> now, according to polls, view those as you will, Hillary was slanted to win. It was assumed that she had won enough people over to secure a victory over the election. The assumption was that she was viewed favorably by many, and at the very least, perhaps the lesser of two evils by most. I know better than to think that was the case here amongst you all, and there certainly has been discussion on media bias, but bear with me. I, I really would like to make a point here because I'm, I'm really not trying to talk about politics. In September of 2016, just two months, 60 days before the election, Hillary was speaking at a fundraiser in New York City. And during this speech, many of you may remember the words that she spoke. What she said is as quoted. We are living in a volatile political environment. You know, to just be grossly generalistic, you could put half of Trump's supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. You name it, and in reference to said basket, they are irredeemable, but thankfully they are not America. I think, I think most people in here will recall when that was said. It was all over the news when the Democratic presidential candidate 
had publicly stated and labeled well over 25% of Americans as deplorables and completely irredeemable and only a short 60 days away from the election. Now, I don't say that necessarily to say in favor of one over the other. That's not the point. I want to make an element over, over this particular circumstance because, long story short, Donald Trump won the 2016 election. And there's multitudes of factors uh, that were brought in to, to either contest the results or perhaps try to rationalize why it might have been unfair. And the point isn't to talk about those as, as that's in the past and, and that's not necessarily the main argument. The main point is this. Many election analysts all similarly concluded that among whatever factors there may have been that contributed to Hillary Clinton's loss in the 2016 elections, a potentially significant one was the damage Hillary did to her own campaign efforts from her statement in the month of September. In a book she released titled What Happened the following year, even Hillary herself referenced the particular incident as a significant contributing factor to her loss. Here's what happened. Her words and how she said them irreparably damaged her capacity for leadership. What she said and how she said it is ultimately what destroyed her chances at assuming the throne, so to speak. I choose to open with that story, not necessarily to make any sort of political case or to talk about politics, but, but it's what I like to call a classic case of the, Rehob of the Rehoboam repeat. Hillary played Rehoboam. She lost the throne. And in some ways, I, I'll, I'll turn it around just to be fair. Donald Trump has done largely the same thing to his own reputation at this point, just to be fair across the board and show the, the point I'm trying to make here. It's an example to get his thinking. But it's not just confined to people in positions of political power, not kings, not presidents. We're all prey to this Rehoboam repeat in one way or another. And hopefully tonight we'll see exactly how this scenario plays out over and over and over again in our everyday lives. And how the irreparable damage to leadership is caused from harsh tone and unkind words. We have a lot, I think, to learn from this tonight. So let's dig in to analyze when a house is divided by a harsh tongue. So to draw your attention back to verse number one, our passage tells us, that Rehoboam, the son of King Solomon, is traveling down to Shechem, where the people intend to convene and install him as the next king. Solomon has just died in the previous chapter, actually in the verses just preceding. And upon inheriting the throne of his father David, we're talking about Solomon. Solomon began his reign, as we know, as a wise and God-fearing young king. Upon, he, he wished for godly wisdom and discernment, and not only did God grant that to him, but in addition to that as well, he, God granted him wish, riches and power that kings would desire because he desired wisdom over all of those. However, we find that as Solomon's riches and power increase, his self-restraint or perhaps lack thereof got the better of him. To build his kingdom, Solomon made alliances with those around him by taking wives to himself, which would have been expressly forbidden of the kings of Israel in the days of Samuel. And as a result, his heart was turned away after strange gods. Now we do, we do say there is a possibility that Solomon turned back to God in his final days as uh, just before his death, as it is traditionally credited that Solomon also penned the book of Ecclesiastes. 
So, so we come to chapter 12 and Rehoboam is set to inherit the kingdom that his father had dedicated so much time and resources to building off the backs of the people. And the inaugurational the inaugural procession is to take place in the city of Shechem, and this isn't just some arbitrary location, but it's an important location with historical significance and several instances throughout the Old Testament. Uh, it was a Levite city of refuge located in the land allotted to the tribe of Ephraim in central Israel. It's the place where Joshua gave his final address to the people of Israel when they came to the land, and it was between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, both representing Promises that God had made to the people when, when Joshua gave them his final charge. So aside from this historical significance, it was simply a courtesy for him to travel up here uh, for all the surrounding tribes to be able to converge centrally within a reasonable distance of the land of their tribes. However, following the events of this account concerning Israel's revolt, Shechem is also significant as it would become the capital of the northern kingdom that had split away from the tribe of Judah. In verses number 2 and 3, Jeroboam, hearing of Solomon's evident death, returns from exile in Egypt as Rehoboam is transitioning into leadership. And we see in chapter 15, Jeroboam is a Ephrathite of the tribe of Ephraim. We find just a page or two over in chapter 11, verse 28, that Rehoboam was a mighty man of valor and industrious. Because of his favor with both the people and with King Solomon at first, Jeroboam was placed over the charge, and this would be the burdens and the taxes of the house of Joseph. And these burdens would have been, again, a combination of taxations and manual labor that would have been required of people in order to bring general prosperity to the kingdom that Solomon was attempting to build and make greater. Now, due to Solomon's idolatry, as we discussed from his strange wives turning away his heart from God, his idolatry, the Lord sent the prophet Ahijah to Jeroboam, and he prophesied that the Lord would rend ten of the twelve tribes from Solomon's son and give them to Jeroboam. Now, there are a couple of elements to this prophecy to consider as we delve into our text. First, I want to say that God promised to build Jeroboam a house just like he did with David, so long as Jeroboam followed the Lord, as David did. And it's found in chapter 11, verse number 38. Second, the affliction of a split kingdom was not meant to be permanent. The throne belonged to the seed of David, as God reminds him in chapter 11, verse 39. And the text says in chapter 11, verse 26, that Jeroboam lifted up his hand against the king. So I think the implication here is that the product of this prophecy uh, is that over the course of these events, the prophecy ended up creating something within Jeroboam that developed this sense of entitlement for the throne. You know, it gave Jeroboam this sense of certainty that the throne, it's mine. Um, he raised his hand against the king, you know, and maybe contrasting that with David in the time of Saul, Samuel tells David that you're to be the next king of Israel while Saul's still alive, and yet David never one time raised his hand against King Saul. So maybe a comparison of those attitudes is, a, is a, of worthy of consideration. And so... It's for this reason we find Jeroboam in Egypt having fled from the wrath of Solomon where he's, he's biding his time waiting for Solomon to, to pass off the scene so he can return and claim what he believes is rightfully his. And in the beginning of chapter number 12, we find that that's exactly what he does. When he hears that Solomon dies, he returns from Egypt. And the third thing I think I want to consider tonight uh, that I, I would like to address is this prophecy says that the outcome 
of the Israel separating from Rehoboam was of God. And I do want to preface before we go into what we're discussing tonight that when the Bible talks about God establishing a certain outcome of consequences that it does not alleviate the freedom to choose on behalf of an individual. If you'll remember in Exodus chapters number 4 through 14, for instance, when Pharaoh is oppressing the children of Israel and Moses is being called to go and free them from Pharaoh and the Lord says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. That is not the Lord saying, I will actively harden Pharaoh's heart where he has no choice but to reject what I'm saying. It's more that the Lord himself and, and the authority that the Lord claims to have over Pharaoh and over Egypt as well as over the children of Israel causes Pharaoh to step back and say, who is the Lord that I should obey him? It's, this is kind of the element at play here where it's not so much that God is, that it's, it's not God's fault, right. right, that Rehoboam loses his spot. And we're really going to focus on Rehoboam tonight because Rehoboam does bear some element of the blame here. So, upon his return, upon Jeroboam's return, that is, we find that the people fetched for Jeroboam nearly immediately to meet with Rehoboam in Shechem. Verses 3 and 4, the people with Jeroboam at the front approach Rehoboam about this grievous yoke that is upon them. As we mentioned earlier, this grievous yoke uh, was a combination uh, that the people were complaining about could have been a combination of, of heavy taxes for building projects as well as, as manual labor to, to be involved in these things as Solomon was building a lot of, of wonders. It was drawing attention from the surrounding countries. Um, that, that, would have, that would have been involved. And now it can be argued, excuse me, about the legitimacy of the claim that Solomon's implementations on the people were significantly oppressive. I think if you, if you read the scripture, you don't necessarily find any mention that Solomon was an abusive king. So we'll consider that on one side. The Old Testament says numerous times concerning the reign of Solomon that the kingdom generally prospered during this time. And so while it may be true that prosperity is not free, and some hard labor would certainly have been required, conversely, the people, in spite of their burdens, seem to be comfortable with the broken state of the worship of God. Yeah. And they seem to have, while, while they were concerned about taxes and, and manual labor, they didn't seem all that bothered with serving Canaanite gods such as Ashtoreth and Molech, uh, whose worship practices in their own right could have been considered oppressive. I mean, I'm really trying to paint a fair picture. I'm giving Rehoboam the benefit of the doubt here. Because, yeah. you know, you have, you have manual taxations and labor versus versus sexual promiscuity and sacrificing your children? Right. Well, take that with, with, for what it is. So they seem to have no issues with this, yet the simple solution of, of tearing down the high places and ceasing the construction for places of worship to false gods didn't seem to cross their minds as a viable solution or the mind of Rehoboam at all. So I digress only to say that while the problem, while the problem of, the, of the burden may have been significant to them, they certainly had bigger issues that could have stood to be fixed first. Yes. So anyways, Jeroboam, he's, he's acquainted with this burden of the people. He was in some ways responsible for overseeing that during the reign of Solomon. He very well could have further stoked the flames of discontentment by giving sympathy from the position of authority that he had. Whether justifiable or not, though, the concerns that the people were bringing before Rehoboam were his responsibility to answer properly. In verse number five, Rehoboam takes three days to seek counsel for his answer. And Rehoboam by no means 
had magically inherited the wisdom of his father, and he certainly never asked for it from God. Neither had he the experience of a seasoned ruler. He hadn't even been officially installed as king yet. So although he ultimately fails to use wisdom, I do, as we mentioned, I do believe there lies some merit that he at least took some time to seek counsel about it. He didn't think that he was smart enough to handle the situation on his own. So he goes in verses number 6 and 7 to the old men who counseled his father. The old men are noted to be those who stood before Solomon while he still lived and reigned on the throne. And they would have been exposed to the wisdom with which Solomon ruled while he was alive. And whether or not the old men perhaps gave Rehoboam the most godly advice. Because again, they didn't necessarily address the, the spiritual problems of Israel either. Um, however, they certainly gave him wise and experienced advice. And a side note here that, that, is, that is very applicable is, is there is significant value to the experience of the aged counsel that God places in our lives. Um, we certainly shouldn't assume that we know everything. And when we're in positions of authority to make decisions for people, it would be wise to talk to people that might give you a better perspective of more experienced wisdom and certainly of more spiritual wisdom. The advice... Of the older men, though, in particular, was this. A leader who speaks kindly and graciously to his people with the intent to serve them will in return receive their hearts and loyalty. Seems fair. However, Rehoboam didn't seem to be content with this answer, as evidently we find him in verse 8 approaching his contemporaries. The young men advised Rehoboam to assert his power over the people, and to treat them roughly, to speak to them roughly. And these young men were the one who, and they weren't necessarily young. I believe if you, Rehoboam would actually be in his, in his late 30s, early 40s at this time. They weren't exactly um, like, you know, young, young men. So these were, but these were certainly men that did not have the, the wisdom of the older men. They were the ones with whom Rehoboam grew up. They were the ones with whom he shared his visions one day about being king. You could say that these men represented the influence of the culture on Rehoboam. And they told him that to be a king worthy of respect, he's got to put his foot down. You know, bring down, bring down the iron fist. He has to speak roughly to these people. See if you can hear the same disrespect from these men of, the, of generations long past uh, that you hear from the mouths of the current and upcoming generation as, as they address their predecessors. And tell them that your little finger is thicker than your father's loins. And, and I'm not going to really explain what that means. It's quite obviously a crude and euphemistic phrase. Um, but ultimately, what it intends to convey is an intense disdain and score for, scorn for Rehoboam's father and their king, the one who had led them. It was, it was blatant disrespect. If your father chastised and oppressed these people with the sting of whips, as they say, then your hand will be as though it were the sting of scorpions, of specialized whips for torture. Solomon was no great king. He was a wimp. If you don't want to be a wimp, don't let these people who have no idea what it means to be king decide what's best for you. Don't let these old fools over here either convince you that the way they do things is better just because it's traditional than doing things our way. We have great ideas. We're, we have the most up-to-date ideas. And, and Rehoboam forsakes the counsel of old men and chooses to heed the advice of the young men and speaks roughly to the people. So the people come on the third day as Rehoboam had directed to hear his answer. And rather than hear 
as the advice of the old men, the graceful words of a king whose heart and desire was to serve them, as they had known with King David, and to some extent with King Solomon, what they end up being met with was an unkind answer which hardens their hearts against him. And in verse number 13, the text specifically tells us that Rehoboam answered the people roughly. He answered them hardly. He did not mince his words at all. Rehoboam, as a leader, failed to follow counsel and therefore automatically defaulted to following culture. Rehoboam's failure was not simply from choosing one council over another. The council of the old men suggested leadership in the form of servitude, who answers the people over, over whom he has authority with kindness and grace. The culture of contemporaries demanded authority in the form of tyranny by putting down his fist and answering people roughly. In verse number 16, then, we find the people of Israel, upon hearing the harsh words of Rehoboam, reject both Rehoboam and the house of David as a whole from being their authority. And in verse number 20, the people choose Jeroboam, whom they knew from the beginning, and made him the king. Now, I really want to make some connections with this account tonight that I think are pertinent to where we are today. We're not kings sitting in this room. All of us in this room, though, do, on the other hand, hold some sort of authority over individuals in one form or another. Sure. Whether you're a husband, you could be a father, you could be a wife, a mother, a teacher, an employer, a supervisor, or simply a neighbor. Not that that necessarily carries some authority, but certainly comes with a degree of influence. Right. Yep. Whether you're any of those things, people are going to come to you with problems, yes. with concerns, They'll have things they want to lay before you and see what your heart is regarding those things. Right. And just like in our text, there's two options for someone in that position when he chooses to answer those people. The wise counsel of those who've come before and the experience of those who've done it already will validate the principle for leadership that is found in God's word, that the leader who serves his people will receive and answers them kindly will receive their trust and loyalty in return. A wise leader's obligation is to hear out the situation, perhaps even take time to seek counsel themselves for their answer. But even if the desired solution proposed, maybe, maybe the circumstance is ridiculous. Maybe the, the, circumstance, the, the solution proposed is not what's best for the particular request. A leader who truly serves and loves his people will always seek to answer them carefully and kindly. And I, I really want to take this moment to, to brag on our pastor as we saw from our beginning example, our political leaders are a catastrophic failure at this element. But I, I can certainly personally contrast that with, with our pastor, uh, who uh, from having worked in the office, I, we, Brother Samuel and I know he deals with a lot of circumstances and requests and problems that people bring before him on a daily basis. And even I myself, when I bring things to pastor, I don't know that I've ever recalled a time where, where pastor gave a harsh answer to someone with a concern, regardless of the legitimacy of the concern or not. Amen. Even when someone is perhaps wrong, or their perspective is off, or their proposed solution is not what's best for them or for anyone else, I, I, would, I would bet every dollar I have that you can expect the most carefully crafted answer that respects both the concern 
but also offers a godly solution, the right solution, in the right tone, in the right way. And that exact same thing occurs weekly in the youth department under Brother Samuel's leadership. Teenagers, I, I think you shouldn't take for granted um, the patience and grace that Brother Samuel and Miss Brielle honestly do use when dealing with certain circumstances. As uh, in, out, out in the world, you might, you might have teachers, I had teachers certainly, that, that if you didn't listen to their advice or counsel, you could go kick rocks. They were not interested in your long-term well-being or development and certainly would not have had the patience to deal with some of the, some of the things that, that teenagers, as I once was, were inclined to get ourselves into. The culture, though, says otherwise. The culture's definition of, of a proper response to a, a asserting authority and leadership and influence, they mock people who show sensitivity to others. Leaders should be firm, unwavering. You need to know the way you do things. You need to know what you want. You're in leadership because you know what's better and people need to follow. If you're compared to some if 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 you're compared to someone who people believe is better, then it's up to you to change their mind or make them afraid to bring it up. A culture that says a leader should focus on building their kingdom and not on leading them. How a, how a leader or someone in authority or someone in a position of influence answers people's circumstances, concerns, and problems matters. Why? Because a leader who does not speak kindly to the, to the people around them will lose them to those that do. I really think that that's what we need to draw out from this tonight. Rehoboam lost ten tribes of Israel simply because there was someone else who treated them better. Why should it matter to us how we answer any given situation? We're still the leader. We're still responsible. God put us in the authority, right? No one's just going to come and make us quit. No one can kick us out of our homes and remove us from being a husband or a father, right? Or, or, a, or a wife or a mother. Perhaps according to the principle of our text, though, Jeroboam is out there. Out there. Outside. In the city of Sioux Falls. They're nice. He's well-liked. And he is absolutely everywhere. Husbands, think about it this way. Jeroboam very well could be the man at the store who hears every unkind word that you speak to your wife. When she brings her concerns, her issues, her struggles, perhaps even just venting her stress. And those, those fallen years, the culture of worldly masculinity tells you to remind her that she needs to remember how hard you work. Or the things that you have on your plate. Her understanding of the family situation is clearly not as in tune as yours is. And once again, you perhaps inadvertently or perhaps intentionally belittle her for failing to recognize just how much you're doing to provide for her and for your kids. Jeroboam sees the remnants of tears on her face when she goes in to shop for groceries, goes out to run errands after you've left for your job. And I guarantee you Jeroboam thinks to himself, whoever makes her feel like that, I could do it better. He's the man across the street or perhaps behind a screen as well for fathers who sees the neglect of your children who need to spend time with you. 
They need, they, they need that engagement with you. They need your wisdom and they need your counsel. Or perhaps they too just need to vent with the struggles of a child. But all they hear is, is how you speak roughly to them because they're bothering you from getting your to-do list done. He watches their heads hang low as the man who's responsible for being their leader and answering them kindly and treating them gracefully doesn't seem to care about their desires and concerns at all. And he thinks to himself, whoever makes them feel that way, I bet I could do it better. Jeroboam isn't exclusively personified by men either. When a wife proceeds to nag her husband about his failure to get things done around the house, when he expresses exhaustion from a hard day at work, perhaps a woman at the office, where the workplace senses that lack of respect and that he gets in the home, and she might think to herself, I don't know who's treating him that way, but I bet I could do it better. Jeroboam could be the teacher at the public school, parents, or perhaps in whatever, whatever things your children might be involved in outside the home. They listen to your children, tell them that their world is falling apart from something as simple as their relationship didn't work out. Or, or that, that someone said something about them and that their world is just crumbling apart. <laughs> you know, they... <laughs> But they don't he doesn't tell them to suck it up or I told you so, but you didn't listen again. But rather reassures them in a soft tone of voice that their heart will ultimately never lead them wrong. And that when mistakes are made and perhaps bad relationships are formed or bad decisions are made, your unkind answer as the most important authority figure and influence in their life simply makes them feel worse. And Jeroboam, on the other hand, is more than willing to step in and tell them that they're okay just the way they are. And even, maybe even what they're struggling with is natural. And he thinks to himself, whoever his parents are, whoever her parents are, I wouldn't treat them that way. The more he hears your people under your charge complain, the more he thinks to himself, if I were over these people, I could do better. And even if Jeroboam, whoever he may be, out there, even if his intentions are completely godless, as we find in Scripture they were, we prove him right when we deal unkindly with people. Jeroboam wants, he wants your wife, he wants your husband, he wants your kids, your family, your home, your church ministry. And every single person that God has entrusted to you to be a proper leader and influence for. God-ordained leaders and people of influence lose their people and their leadership by addressing people unkindly. Remember, a leader who does not speak kindly to people will lose them to those who do. Now that's not to say the compromise the truth. That's not the point. Those people will follow Jeroboam, however, as he takes advantage of the situation and he'll lead them somewhere totally different. The idea is not to be defensive over losing one's leadership. That would be bad enough. But it's because the consequences of treating people unkindly and pushing them away are far worse. We find later in the chapter that Jeroboam leads God's people away from their proper authority and drives them to sin. He has no intention of leading people to God and fulfilling 
fulfilling the agreement that God gave to him, that if he gave him the throne and he served him, he would establish a house for him just like David. Nowhere on Jeroboam's radar. The first thing Jeroboam thought was, if these people go back to Jerusalem to worship God, then they'll go back to their old king. The first thing he does is set up idols to cause people to stumble. In fact, the scripture refers to Jeroboam as the man who made Israel to sin. The issue was not only that Rehoboam split the kingdom from the house of David, the kings of the kingdom of Judah managed to produce several kings who, so you may know Josiah and Hezekiah, they produced some kings that sought after God eventually. However, after Jeroboam took the other ten tribes in the northern kingdom, there was not a single godly king who reigned in Israel all the way until they were carried captive. The cost of driving away God's people to seek after Jeroboam would lead them to a godless future and inevitably towards catastrophe. The children of Israel never recovered. They were made to sin in idolatry until the day God judged them and delivered them into the captivity of the Assyrians. And they may have shared some of the blame by leaving. They may have. But the one responsible, the leader responsible, the person with authority and influence responsible was Rehoboam for driving them away. Likewise, the people who leave the leadership of God, of those to whom God has placed over them, share some of the blame. However, the primary individual responsible for such a catastrophic outcome is the leader that drives their people away with unkind answers to their problems and cares. Now tonight, to maybe remind you of the cost of the damage that that can incur. We, we talked about a presidential candidate losing the most powerful position of, of authority and influence in this country just because of the damage they created by something that they said. And some of us might need to be mindful of the damage that we're causing people with how we're addressing them. We may be right. We may be right. You can be right but wrong at the top of your voice. That's not how love works, is it? In fact, this, this message tonight in some ways, as, as we haven't officially moved on to a new theme yet, so technically the theme is still love works, I thought I could, you know, I thought this would be a good reminder not to forget love works as we move on. Some of us may need to admit responsibility for some division that's already occurred from an unkind response to concerns and cares of those who are under us. The city of Sioux Falls won't be reached for Christ if we are unable to answer people kindly when it comes to their questions or their concerns, their, their skepticism about the gospel even. The inability to deal with someone gracefully without putting them down is the difference between them in that moment choosing between Christ or CNN. No, I say that as a joke, but really, really. We live in a, we live in a culture, we live in a culture that, that, when you break it down at its very roots, is, is intolerant, but at the very least, they are very welcoming. They do at least package it well and are very friendly on the surface. We may be telling them what they need to hear in terms of substance, but what good does it do if we don't, if we don't communicate that in a kind and gracious way? And the shallow culture offers them way kinder words, even if there is no depth. We condemn people to a godless future 
when we deal and speak roughly with those whom we are over and have influence with. When you deal with people for whom you are responsible roughly or unkindly, you will lose them to those who do. Your spouse, your kids, your family, your city. Let's not let Jeroboam step in to take what God intended for you by failing to pay attention to the kindness with which we deal with others. Let's all stand. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.